Amen. Amen. Turn to your neighbor and tell him you love him in Jesus' name. Bless the Lord. And if you have your Bibles tonight, I'm going to invite you to open them again with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, and we're going to begin, <clears throat> excuse me, at verse number 18 here in just a moment. For any of you that are gathering with us for the first time on Wednesday night, we take a book of the Bible and we work through it on Wednesday nights verse by verse. And we take our time. We don't have any agenda. We don't have any syllabus. We just work through it verse by verse for as long as it takes us. That's the beauty of Wednesday night. We're not in any hurry. We just want to hear what the Word of the Lord has to say. And uh, back in the fall, we started this study on the book of Revelation. This is I believe our 10th week in this, and uh, we're just plowing uh, along here, and we're in chapter 2, almost through. In fact, we'll finish it here uh, tonight. But uh, I'm not going to do any kind of a review. I do want to just, again, for any of you that are here for the first time, kind of give you like a lay of the land here. Um, Many of you, when we think of Uh, the book of Revelation, we immediately think of its eschatological themes, which would be the study of future things. And typically, when you hear the book of Revelation, that's what you think of. And certainly, the majority of the book is about the study of the future, of, of what the end of all things will look like. God did not leave us in the dark concerning the end. He made uh, these things known to us, though there are shadows and types within them so that we would never get that arrogant about it. But they still inform us as to what will happen specifically and in general. And so um, that is true of this, but it takes a few chapters really to get in that. It's not until you come to Revelation chapter 4 that you really begin to deal with these prophetic things uh, and themes. Uh, You have to kind of get through those first three chapters. Chapter 1 is really an introduction to the entire book. And in the latter part of chapter 1, we're actually introduced to Jesus Christ in all of His glory. And we see Jesus walking in the midst of seven golden lampstands, which we are told represent seven literal churches that were located in ancient Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey. These churches were all connected by a postal route, and Jesus writes uh, these letters to these seven churches. In fact, the whole revelation was first entrusted to them, and then, of course, it spread throughout the body of Christ and continues even 2,000 years later. But um, we see Jesus, again, in the latter part of chapter 1, walking in the midst of these seven golden lampstands representing the seven churches. And we are given a picture of Jesus as judging these churches, as examining these churches, as inspecting these churches. And when you come to chapters 2 and 3, you hear Jesus reporting on his findings. 
he writes a letter to each one of those seven churches and said, having walked in your midst, having examined you, having watched you, having um, examined you, this is what I have found. And he addresses each one of those seven churches. And then, and only then, in chapter 4, do you start unpacking future events. Um, and the final judgment, if you will, of the nations of the earth. And as I've said to you the last couple of times we've been together, um, that is the order of God's uh, judgment, if you will. God, being a faithful Father, will always judge His church first. Um, Peter said, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the time has come for judgment to begin in the house of the Lord. This is the church age that we are living in. The church age started at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the 120 um, in the upper room in Acts chapter 2. We will continue in the church age until the church is raptured. Until that day, we are the subject of God's judgment. Not wrath, but judgment. God is always purifying His church. He's always calling us to repentance, calling us to holiness, calling us to seasons of revival. God is dealing with us. And I tell you that so you won't grow weary. You look at the nations of the earth and you're thinking, they're getting away with murder. They're not getting away with anything. God is judging the church right now. But there will be a time when the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain under the coming of the Lord will be caught up together to meet them in the air. Forevermore we will be with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. First Thessalonians chapter 4, I believe it's there in verse 17 or so. And at that point, the church is taken into heaven and the judgment and wrath of God will come upon the nations of the earth. And that will begin uh, to some degree in chapter 4. It is interesting to note that once chapter 3 ends and the final pronouncement of judgment upon the church takes place, and that's the church of Laodicea, you will never hear the church spoken of again until you come to Revelation chapter 19 when you see the saints returning with Christ to the earth and God will establish His kingdom uh, for the next thousand years. How many of you are looking forward to that day in Jesus' name? So that's kind of where we're at right now. We've already looked at three of the churches. Um, the last time we were together, we start of... Uh, started, kind of started, to look at the fourth church. We didn't get that very far. I actually did really an introduction to that church. We didn't really even get into it. But uh, that's one of the reasons I like our Wednesday nights, because as I mentioned that last time we were together, it gives me an opportunity to talk about things that we don't normally talk about and probably wouldn't talk about on a Sunday morning. Um, Sunday morning, you have too general of a congregation to talk about all things. And that's why I love Wednesday night, because then we can talk about some things that uh, maybe would be harder for people who are newer to the faith or not even in the faith to hear, but they still need to be said. And Wednesday night gives us the opportunity to talk about it. And that's what we did, again, the last time we were together, which I think was three weeks ago. Um, I said to you that 
one of the hardest responsibilities of pastoring and one aspect of ministry that you hear very little about today and i can tell you having gone through bible college myself you are not really equipped to deal with is that of church discipline you don't hear a lot about church discipline anymore but there are times where pastors and elders have to come alongside partners within that local church who have not only fallen into sin but are remaining in that sin and will not repent of that sin where they have to come alongside them and encourage them to repent of their sin to come out of that and be restored to the Lord and should they refuse to repent they have the very difficult task of now standing before the other partners of that fellowship and actually marking them as those who seek to cause division and that they are these are Paul's words not mine to be turned over to Satan for the destruction of their flesh so that they might be saved that sounds harsh but it is still the word of the living God now we're not talking about every time a partner slips up and falls into sin okay we all stumble we all struggle but we get back up and we keep moving for the Lord we're talking about one who professes to be a Christian who is within the church that persists in that sin and refuses to acknowledge it as sin then that requires discipline where you come alongside again and try to bring them to repentance and if not you have to mark them it sounds harsh but it's for two people first it is for that unrepentant sinner to get them to a place of repentance because they cannot be deceived if you live in the flesh you will not inherit the kingdom of heaven it doesn't matter if you profess to be a believer you can't live in persistent sin and enter into the kingdom of God you'd be miserable there because everybody is living righteously in heaven so you're not going and the, and the church has a responsibility to point that out to them but it's not only for them it is for the body as well because it's very easy for um, uh, immature for babes in Christ those who are newer to the faith to look at that individual and say well they're a Christian and they're doing it so you have to mark them and say no 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 that is not the example of Christ we're not going to judge their salvation we're telling you that is not how believers live and you can't set your sights on that God has called us to a standard of holiness and righteousness. We have, a, we have a responsibility. You can't keep all the sin out of the church. We're a hospital for sinners, okay? But we don't want blatant, ongoing sin to be tolerated. And again, you know, that gets dicey. And certainly there are pastors that have abused that. And certainly there are congregations that are overbearing. I understand it. But you can't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Just because there are people that have abused it does not free us from the responsibility of applying discipline when it is necessary. I shared with you last time we were together, whether you realize it or not, the first person to ever talk about it was Jesus. 
Jesus talked about church discipline in Matthew 18. Um, I'm not going to give you, you know, we're not going to read it right now. You can go and read it later. But in Matthew 18, Jesus made it very clear. Hey, you know, if somebody offends you and they're in sin, you go to them, just you and them. And that's where it should be dealt with. But if they keep in it, you got to get two or three other witnesses. They come. If they refuse it, then you got to get the church involved. He was the one that talked about it. Paul certainly talked about it. Um, it's talked about in Acts chapter 5. Paul mentioned it in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. And then again, he spoke of it in 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 14 and 15. So um, I, I laid all of that out for you as an introduction to this next church because in the church located in the ancient city of Thyatira, you're going to get a picture of what happens when a church does not discipline when they tolerate sin when they let it go and that's why i shared all of that with you so here we go uh, revelation chapter 2 let's begin at verse number 18 i'm going to read this letter uh, in its entirety and then we'll break it down and to the angel of the church in thyatira and again those of you that are just showing up that angel there is not an angel an angelic being it is actually the pastor or you might even say the lead elder of that church and in each one of these letters is addressed first and foremost to the pastor of that particular church and to the angel of the church in Thyatira write these things says the son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, listen to this, the last are more than the first. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you, because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols." And I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts, and I will give to each one of you according to your works." Now to you I say, and to the rest of Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, who have not known the depths of Satan, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. But hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron, they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen and amen. Now, um, this is, it's interesting, this is the longest letter of the seven letters, but it is given to the smallest city of the seven it's just 
an interesting thought that the longest letter is actually given to the smallest church in the smallest city. Now the standout characteristic of Thyatira, and I'd like to give you this, and, and, and in this particular city, the context is everything. The standout characteristic of Thyatira was its guilds. Um, we don't use the word guild much anymore, um, although you do hear it sometimes right around this time of the year when they talk about the screenwriters guild or they talk about the screen actors guild. I think most of you now know that guild is like our modern day union. It was that kind of a way. And Thyatira was a city that was almost completely run by the guilds. Um, it its primary industry was the manufacturing of wool and other dyed goods. In fact, in the book of Acts, you may remember a lady named Lydia. Lydia was a seller of purple dyes, and she actually was a saleswoman from the city of Thyatira. There were linen workers' guilds. There were outer garment guilds. There were leather guilds, potters' guilds, bakers, slave dealers, bronze smiths' guild. All of these, among others, were very prevalent in that city. Now, it's interesting to know that Thyatira was not the center for any religious practice like the others that we have discussed and others that we have not even begun to look at yet. Um, They worshipped Apollo as their primary god, but they built no temple to him. Um, Also, there was no sizable Jewish population there in Thyatira. And the reason that I point that out is because up until this point, a lot of the pressure that was applied to Christians in those cities was religious uh, pressure. They were getting a lot from the Jewish community, a lot of pressure from um, the, uh, the idolatrous worshipers of that time who were given over to the Greek gods. And that was where most of the pressure was coming from. But it was not religious freedom and persecution that they were receiving here. The real threat in Thyatira, the real pressure that Christians were experiencing, interestingly enough, was from these guilds. As I understand it, you could not hold a job in Thyatira unless you belonged to a union or a guild. Sounds like Philadelphia. (laughs) Sounds like New York City, okay? They were given completely over. You could not hold a job in Thyatira unless you belonged to one of these guilds. You could not own and run a business unless you signed up to be part of that guild. Now, There's nothing necessarily immoral with belonging to a guild or to a union. I'm sure that there are even people here that are working for a union. Uh, there's, There's nothing wrong with that. The problem in that time was that each one of those guilds had its own patron deity. And they worshiped that deity. And so when they had their union meetings, when they had their guild meetings, you would come together, you would have a meal together that consisted of foods that had all been offered up to idols. And they would also have a time during their union meetings where they would worship their deities. Most were worshipped in sexual orgies. And so this was a real dilemma for the believer. Because in order for them to hold a job, 
in order for them to have a business and to run that business, they would have to belong to a guild and have to go to these guild meetings where they would eat meat offered to idols and have to engage in sexual orgies. So the Christians had the difficult decision of whether they were going to keep their jobs and their businesses by participating in these idolatrous and adulterous activities or would they lose everything for the sake of the great name of Jesus Christ? Kind of sounds like where we're heading in the United States of America today. Thank the Lord we're not there yet. Um, you know, there is, there is a, a teacher that goes to Bethel right now that um, is kind of in a legal battle because he is being forced to go through LGBTQ sensitivity training. Not because of anything he did, but they're forcing all of the teachers in this particular district to go through it. And he's just saying, listen, I will be respectful of everyone that is in my class. I am not going to do anything to offend, but I am not going to go to this class. And they are saying, you are or you will lose your job. Now, I don't know how close we are, but listen, it's like I said through that whole series on 2 Timothy. If where we are right now is any indication of where we're going, and if where we're going right now is any indication of where we're going to be in the future, then I don't think that it is far-fetched to say that unless there is a major revival in this country, that we will see a day where in order for you and I to hold our, well, maybe not me, but um, for you to hold your job, that you will have to not only say that you will not persecute those in your office who are LGBTQ or whatever, but that you actually agree with it. And it's very easy in the midst of freedom to say, well, I would never compromise. It's another thing if that happens and they lock you out financially. When they seize what is yours. You say, they can't seize my stuff. Yeah, yeah, okay. You, you can live in that little uh, ivory palace, but it will all come crashing down. We don't know. We pray that these things don't happen. But boy, we better be ready. Because it was happening in Thyatira 2,000 years ago. They had to make a decision. Are we going to stand for Christ and maybe lose everything? Not even be able to provide for our families? Or do we compromise our walk with the Lord? Now, Jesus, in each one of these letters, He reveals Himself in a way that... Um, that speaks directly to where that church is. And here he, do, he reveals himself as the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet like fine brass. Um, it's interesting to point out that in chapter 1 and verse number 13, he revealed himself as the Son of Man. Um, I've mentioned this in times past. I think most of you know that. And that is that the various titles that are given to the Father, 
the various titles that are given to the Son, the various titles that are given to the Spirit, are, are given so that we would get a clearer picture of the nature, the character, and the ministry of each one of them. And, and so any title that is given to them, it is just to help us get a bigger picture of the God that we serve, the Son that is our Savior, the Spirit that abides within us. And that is true even with the title Son of Man. Son of Man is obviously stressing the humiliation of Christ, that God the Son became flesh and dwelt among us. It, it underscores His ministry as our High Priest, that He was tempted at every point just like we are and yet without sin so whenever you see the title son of man it is really drawing your attention to the intercessory ministry of christ that he can be uh, tested that he was tested as all of us and can sympathize with our weaknesses and never ceases to intercede for us but here specifically he reveals himself as the son of god which obviously is stressing his deity that he is one with the father and he is the one that the father has designated to judge the living and the dead at his appearing and in his kingdom so he wants the church of Thyatira not to see him in his intercessory ministry he wants them to see him in his judgment they he, he wants to show them I'm walking among you judging you yes I am your great intercessor, but if you refuse to work with me, I am your judge. And that is what he is clearly revealing himself to them. He's saying, I know what is really going on here. He says that his eyes are like a flame of fire, which obviously is his penetrative ability, that he sees everything, that he's not just looking at the surface, but he's penetrating even down to the depths of our heart, knowing the thoughts and the intents of our heart. And again, nothing is hidden from God. Even as we sit and stand here tonight, nothing is hidden from God. You may think that no one knows what you're thinking right now but there is a father in heaven that knows everything nothing is hidden from him turn to your neighbor and tell him nothing is hidden from God right now he also reveals himself as having feet that are of fine brass many of you know that brass was the hardest metal known to man at that time not now but at that time brass was the hardest metal um, in that day and it speaks of his steadfastness it, it speaks of his strength and ability to deal with all that is happening in this church and around this church and boy we need to know that our God is steadfast he is strong and he is able to deal with everything that is happening in this world I'm wondering how many Christians were even watching those images last night of those missiles going in to US uh, bases and and we're like, oh, no, no. I'm going to tell you, God was not shaken for one second. He is steadfast. He is strong enough. He is able enough. God is still in control tonight in Jesus' name. Can you say amen to that? Bless God. All right, that's how he reveals himself. Verse 19, he says, I know your works, love, service, faith, and your patience. And as for your works, I love this, the last are more than the first. So again, he begins with commendation. 
And he commends them for their faith, their love, their service, and their patience. And then he tells them something extraordinary. He says, and as far as your works of faith and love and service and patience, he says, they are more now than they were in the beginning. So this is a church that, in spite of all we're going to read here in just a moment, is still managing to grow. There are people that are really bearing fruit in this church. Um, and, and literally, what he's saying to them is that I, I just am commending you that in spite of all that is happening, still there are a number of you that are committed to growing in your faith to the point that right now you are more faithful, you are more loving, there are more people serving, and you are more patient than at any other time in your history. And they, this church had been around for 40 years at this particular time. So they were really growing. You put that in sharp contrast to the first church that we looked at, the church at Ephesus, who had left their first love and were told to remember from where they had fallen. I mean, so Ephesus was on the decline, but in many ways, Thyatira was a growing church, and not numerically maybe, but certainly in growth in Christ. They were developing and bearing fruit. But then verse 20 starts with this word, nevertheless. You know, I wonder if they ever just thought, come on, Jesus, give us a break. I mean, look, look at how good we are. And Jesus said, you know what? In spite of the fruit you are bearing, I cannot overlook these few things that I have against you. Folks, don't ever think that good enough is enough. Um, and and I, I want to be careful because we're not works-based. We, we certainly believe in the grace of God. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this in a moment. But, but God desires and commands us to grow in the faith. And, and if we're not, He cannot overlook that. And so as, as great as this church is in that particular area, he says, nevertheless, I do have a few things against you. Verse 20, because you allowed that woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. You allow that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Quickly, let me just say this. Evidently, there was a woman in that church who called herself, and that's very important, underline it in your Bible if you have something to underline it with, who called herself a prophetess that was being allowed to teach a seductive message that was actually permitting believers to commit all forms of sexual sin and mix their Christian faith with pagan worship practices. Now, there's a whole lot to unpack here, and just bear with me as we kind of break this out. First of all, 
please understand that the woman's name was not Jezebel. That's not what he was calling her. He wasn't saying that was her name. He was actually marking her character and the evil heart that she possessed. Many of you that have been in the faith for a long time actually knows he's shouting back to a very infamous woman in the Old Testament, Jezebel, who was the wicked wife of King Ahab, who at that time was the king of Israel. Now, she was nothing short of a satanically influenced agent sent by the devil himself to corrupt the children of God in the nation of Israel. She was a vile woman. Now, I'm not going to take the time to outline her life. I know maybe some of you would want me to do that, but it would take us three weeks to get through this portion of scripture if we did that but for those of you that are interested in maybe going a little further with this if you begin at first kings chapter 16 and i think it's 17 18 and 19 i think that that's where it ends with her you'll know where it ends because literally she goes to the dogs some of you will <laughs> some of you know what i mean others of you you got to go read now okay but she goes to the dogs in the end um, but you can read that later. What you do need to know is that there was no viler of a woman in the Old Testament than Jezebel. In fact, it tells us in 1 Kings 16, in verse 30, Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians. Now, just think about that for a moment. And it came to pass, as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, he took as his wife Jezebel. It's like, if, if I could not think of a better way to insult God, I'm not only going to walk in the sins of my forefathers, but I'm going to take it even up a notch, and I'm going to marry an idolatrous woman. A woman that was given over to some of the most sexually perverted gods of that day. And as a result, he went and served Baal himself and worshipped him. Then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. Samaria was the capital city of, of Israel um, at that time. And Ahab made a wooden image and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. I kind of snickered there in a moment because it says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him uh, until the next king. <laughs> and then it says, and he did more than anybody else. It just keeps getting worse and worse and worse. So just as Jezebel had seduced Ahab, her husband, and then led him and ultimately the nation into outright rebellion against God and worshiping the God of Baal, so this woman was calling herself a prophetess. And in the name of prophecy, she was seducing men and women through a perverted gospel in order to get them to believe that they could maintain this personal and intimate relationship with Christ while still remaining sexually impure and engage in cultic, idolatrous worship. And worse, they were tolerating this. The pastor was letting it go on. The elders were letting it go on. 
Nobody was addressing it. There was no church discipline. It was, it was almost out of control at this point. And it's just amazing that at the same time, they're still growing in their faith. It's, it's just this paradox that we don't always understand. But w- what he's saying is this has got to be dealt with quick. This is very similar for, for uh, any of you that have been with me in this study. Very similar to what the church at Pergamos was going through. But where it was in its infancy in Pergamos, it is now just in full-blown epidemic mode in Thyatira. And it is a reminder to us of the devastating consequences that always follow a tolerance of sexual sin and mixing faith with the world. And you're seeing that I had mentioned this on uh, on, on Sunday night, and I don't know how many of you are here, but you know, I, I don't know how many of you have been following this, but there is a great, great division occurring in one of the oldest denominations in the world right now, the United Methodist Church, dividing over um, LGBTQ issues. Um, some wanting to ordain LGBTQ individuals and let them hold ministry credentials and others saying no. And, and, and you're thinking, how could a denomination started by Charles Wesley or John Wesley, how could it be dividing at this point? But this is what happens when you make exceptions and you tolerate and you do not hold fast the word of the living God. People in the church, obviously, as I mentioned before, were being pressured by these guilds, these unions, to engage in sexual sin and eating meats offered to gods. And they, they saw how that did not jive with the word of God. They, they may not have had Bibles like we do now, but they had the letters that Paul had written to them. They, they had the letters that Peter had written to them so they knew what God required of them. But, but they're like, we got to eat. Like, I've got a business. I've poured all of my money into this business. And, and if I don't join this guild, and if I don't eat these meats, and if I don't sleep in these orgies, I'm going to lose it all. I, I won't be able to fend for my family and and it was stressful to them and so this woman declared herself to be a prophetess and i have a fresh word from the lord and she preached a message that would accommodate them now we don't we don't know what she taught jesus does not tell us what her message was but we can only assume what it was based upon just other scriptures that we read not not the least of which would maybe be the opening words of Jude where he talks about men who uh, turned the grace of God into uh, lewdness or licentiousness Uh, literally it's just the idea they use grace as a license to sin and so we would we would say that she probably was saying listen listen God knows you have to eat. And, and so God's grace will cover this. She probably said things like, you don't have to worry about how you live. You're saved by grace. And so your behavior is inconsequential. 
You're not endorsing their lifestyle. You're not endorsing this. And God knows where your heart really is. So don't worry about it. God's grace will cover it all. Um, many of you know that there were two, two major false doctrines that were always trying to infiltrate the first century church. One of them was Gnosticism. Both of them are addressed. They're just not called it in the Scriptures, but we know historically. One of them was called Gnosticism. The Gnostics believed that your physical body, your flesh, was inherently evil. And that you would never be able to ultimately tame your flesh. Your flesh was just prone to do evil and vile and wicked things. And it, you, know, you might be able to, to marshal it a little bit, but eventually it's going to fail because it's just bent towards sin and iniquity. But they would say, the good news is that your spirit is inherently good and righteous. And so it, it will always do right. And the good thing, what they would, the Gnostics taught is your spirit can never affect your flesh and your flesh can never affect your spirit. So what they would say is, don't worry about how you live. You know, you're just, you're just a carnal man. You're just carnal women. And no matter how hard you try to live a good life, you will never be able to do it. But don't worry. Don't, don't even try. Because it can affect your spirit. You're right with God. And just bask in His love and grace and mercy. That was one false doctrine. The other one uh, you may have heard of is antinomianism. Uh, literally, antinomianism means without law. And so these were the individuals that said, you know what, we as Christians, we're not under law anymore. We don't have to live by restrictions and, uh, and those things. We're saved by grace. So don't even worry about how you live. You, you can live any way you want to. You're going to go to heaven because you're saved by grace. And man, that is what's happening even today. And this, this woman was teaching that. And who wouldn't want to believe that? I get to eat my cake. Or I get to, what is it? I get to have my cake, have my cake and eat it too. I, I get it all. I don't have to live a holy life. I don't, I don't have to submit myself. I can just, I can live. And it's a, an accommodating message. And, it, and you can understand why it made its inroads in the, in the church of Thyatira because who wouldn't want to hear that if it meant I was going to lose everything? I'm going to tell you, folks, it's in the world today. I, I am so thankful. How many of you are thankful that you don't have to work for your salvation? Th three of you. How many of you are glad that you don't have to work for your salvation? Okay, no one. I, I don't want anyone to ever, ever leave here thinking that you've got to live good enough to be saved. And that even once you're saved, that you've got to live up. Okay, it's not that. Okay. But Jesus starts every letter with these words, I know your works. And so we as believers have to recognize that we're not saved by works, but if we're saved, the works will follow. By their fruits, Jesus said, 
you will know them. You'll know who are my children because they will bear the fruit that is unique to the very character of Almighty God. Listen, the pull of the world is inescapable in your own strength. The Bible says in 1 Timothy 4, verses 1 and 2, now the Spirit expressly says in the latter times, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. The great falling away will not be saints getting up one day and just saying, I'm out of here. I'm not going to, I don't want anything to do with God anymore. It won't be that way because most of us, we know enough that we can't walk away from that and still have salvation. But what we will do is we'll look for a gospel that accommodates the way we want to live. So we'll go to churches where they're preaching doctrine, but it will be doctrines of demons. And we'll feel the Spirit, but it will be a seducing Spirit. And after long-term exposure to that, their conscience will become seared with a hot iron. And the idea of a conscience being seared is that it is beyond feeling. That you won't even feel the conviction of God because you've gotten so used to these doctrines of demons and loving the feeling of being seduced. That's why Jesus said to us in Matthew 24, take heed that no one deceives you. Because they're going to deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. You're going to be hated for all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended. They're going to betray one another. They will hate one another. Then many false prophets are going to rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness, that's antinomianism, will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved this is going to be an uphill road folks until you get to heaven it is going to be a fight of faith and again all of this was being tolerated it was being permitted allowed and no one was saying anything about it somehow it had become acceptable in that church no one wanted to deal with it now i want to say one more thing before i move on and i didn't realize how late it was here but I, I feel compelled to say this. And I want you to listen to everything that I'm going to say before you um, draw a conclusion. Because I'll probably lose some of you in the first half of my statement. But just stay with me through it all. Be very, very careful of anyone that, that goes around calling themselves a prophet be very careful about anyone that is very um, almost braggadocious and talks about how they have the prophetic gift and, and how the Lord uses me prophetically. Be very careful of that. Now listen, you're saying, well, well don't you believe in it? Of course I do. I believe in the prophetic gifts. I believe in prophets. I believe in the gift of prophecy. So don't anyone leave here thinking that I don't believe in it. How many of you are thankful that God can reveal things to his prophets and that he has the prophetic gift? I, I don't want you to misunderstand me. But I, I'm telling you to be very cautious about people that go through the church saying openly, I'm a prophet. I'm a prophetess. I have the prophetic gifts. God gives me dreams and visions and all of that. Okay? And the reason I tell you that 
is because I see an order in the, old, in the New Testament that is clear to me as day. And that is that it is not for anyone to go around claiming that gift. That is a gift that is recognized by the pastor and the elders. And then having recognized that, they go before the body and they release them and say, we recognize these gifts. We recognize that touch of God upon their life. And they're under our watch we're not just unleashing them on you. They're under our watch. But we believe that they hear from the Lord. If you don't hear me acknowledging them, don't, don't, don't listen. Please, be discerning. We want to give the Holy Spirit freedom to move. But God always moves within the order that He gave. You know, I think that, I, I think that Paul is probably the most... Uh, overlooked case study for this because a lot of people just assume that the moment that Paul got saved he just started going out preaching and starting churches and everything else well he did start preaching initially that didn't go too good and so the Lord basically took him off grid for a few years to training and then he stayed in training do you know that from the time he got saved till the time he went out in ministry with Barnabas was 13 years. And guess what? When he finally went out, he didn't just go in and say, here I am, I'm going. He waited until the elders at the church at Antioch were fasting and praying one day. And the Spirit spoke to them and said, call them out. It's time for them to go on the road. And they sent them out and released them. And so I, I just I'm saying that to you as your pastor because I've I've watched people wreck their lives because they listen to people who tout themselves as prophets and prophetesses but are not under authority at all. Okay? And I care enough about I listen, this is my for, first rodeo. I've been in Pentecost all of my life. And I will tell you this from experience, okay? People that go around calling themselves prophets and, and prophetesses, and really in that brag, braggadocious manner, they typically do it for two reasons. To gain control and manipulate people and, and so that they do not have to be submitted to anyone in authority. Because in their mind, there's no one greater than the prophet. And so, who is even the pastor to tell me I'm wrong? And so they use that prophetic gift to lord over people, to control them, to manipulate them, and they do it so they do not have to be submitted to anyone. Listen, we all are to submit to one another, and there is no one that is greater than the other. There may be positions of authority. Certainly, I am you know, in the position of authority over this church. But that doesn't mean I'm the greatest Christian. It doesn't mean that I, I'm, even, I'm even the, the most mature. I, I don't know where I am in that order. But it just means somebody has to lead. And that position was given to me. And by the grace of God, I try to stay humble. But I'm just telling you these things because I don't want you to wreck your life 
because somebody said, I'm a prophet and this is a word from you. Do you understand what I'm saying? This church got in a mess because they allowed a prophetess to just run free. Wow. Oh, what do you think? Should I go just a little bit longer? You want me to go just a little? Am I losing anybody? Okay, all right. Let me just see what I can do here. I gave her time, verse 21, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality. She did not repent. Christ gave her time to repent. There had been multiple warnings, but she refused. And now judgment was coming. She had deceived herself. And as we said on Sunday, she continued in a way that seemed right to her. Literally, she just devised in her mind a gospel that would permit her to commit sexual sin and still be a prophetess. To lead people into sexual sin and idolatry. It was an accommodating gospel and she believed that it was the gospel. And, and that man, I'll tell you, that is my greatest concern in this hour is that people are committing a a mental idolatry. They are devising a gospel that fits them and they are serving that gospel and not this gospel. And, And I, like, you know, I have a vantage point. When I'm up here and I'm looking out at you, I see everybody's expressions. I see everybody's eyes. And I I could tell even on Sunday as I was talking about there being a way that seems right to a man, there were people that were just viciously angry. Because who are you to tell me that my way is wrong? No humility. And, and, And... It just grieves my heart. That's what this woman had done. That's what all of those who followed her had done. They had used the, the, that, that false, that invented gospel as their own. Um, how many, I was reminded of that this week because I read my Proverbs again this week. How many of you tried to read your proverb every day this week? Let me see. Getting a little better. I'm going to start asking that a lot more. Read your proverb every day. Turn to your neighbor and tell him, read your proverb every day. If you read your proverb today, or not, not today, what's today? Today's eighth, yesterday. If you read your proverb yesterday, you were reminded of this very thing. I'm going to end with this. I, I'm going to have to, okay? I'll, I'll end with this, and we'll pick it up, but we'll go into the next church as well next week because we're almost at the end. Um, but I'm going to end with this thought. I, um, if you know Proverbs 7, you know it is the anatomy of an affair. And it all goes down as Solomon is looking at the latticework of his palace. He sees this whole thing happening before his very eye as this young man meets up with a married woman and she entices him into the house. But you know what is often overlooked? This, to me, is frightening. Proverbs 7, verses 14 and 15. It's not on the screen because I just pulled it up at the last minute. I, this is what she said to him. This is, af- this is after she entices him. They're not, they haven't slept together yet, but she pulls him in and she says, I have peace offerings with me. Today, I paid my vows so I came out to meet you, diligently to seek your face, and I have found you. Now, we read that and think nothing of it. 
peace offerings were offered on one of three occasions, or maybe two or three at the same time, okay? They were either offered as a free will offering for some unexpected blessing that had come your way. How many of you ever had an unexpected blessing just come your way? Okay, they would offer up this peace offering. They would also offer it up as a payment of a vow that they had made when they were praying. You know, every once in a while they would say, Lord, if you will, then I will. And, and when God answered their prayer, they would pay that vow. That was a peace offering. But then they would also offer it in thanksgiving where really the word is confession. The idea is they would offer this peace offering when they needed deliverance from a dire situation. Okay? For whatever reason they offered it up, the peace offering was unique in, excuse me, in that it was the only offering that you didn't give it completely. You gave a part of it that was taken to be offered up to the Lord, but you took the rest of it and you took it home so that you could eat that with your family and celebrate the faithfulness of God. You were just to sit there and eat it and say, wow, isn't God good? Look at the blessings He's bestowed upon us. Look at the sin that He has covered. Look at the mercy that He has shown us. This woman goes to the, the uh, temple. She goes to the tabernacle, wherever she is. She goes, offers the peace offering. And rather than bringing it back to her home to actually celebrate the faithfulness of God, she eats it as a pretext for an adulterous affair. She actually asks the young man to eat it with her. And then they're going to go sleep together. How many people come to church every Sunday and in their mind wash their slate clean and then go right out there and rather than contemplate the faithfulness, the goodness, and the mercy of God and restrain their heart from sin, actually use God's grace to justify their evil. Folks, we serve a holy God and He's called us to be holy and not abuse His wonderful grace. In Jesus' name. Father, we said at the very beginning of this journey with the seven churches that these were meant to put us in a place of examination over our own lives. And Holy Spirit, we would ask that You would show us any area in our life where we still live in rebellion, but always cover it with grace, as if that meant we don't have to submit our life to you for transformation. Lord, proper understanding of grace will always free us from sin, not keep us in it. Help us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, everybody, for your patience. We'll see you, the Lord willing, on Sunday. Amen.